Good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? Yeah, okay, that's all right. You can be honest. I know how you're doing. And uh, uh, as camp goes on, we do get worn down a little bit. And the announcements that Chris is making are extremely valuable. Listen to what he's saying. And you might even practice some of the things that he's saying, too. It's for everyone's benefit. Get some rest, get some water, get in the pool if you can, take care of the little monsters, all of the things <laughs> that you, we heard this morning and more. So we can all enjoy this. We don't want to go home tomorrow and say, you know, I'll never do that again. That was the most trying thing that I have ever been through. And of course, the temperature, it's been pretty warm here. That only adds to the stress of all of this when you go outside and it feels like it's a 135 degrees or whatever, that just makes us all a little bit more tired and a little bit more thirsty. Well, um, I would hope after three sermons in about 25 hours that you've got the point that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you've heard essentially three sermons now on what we might term the crucified life. What that means, we need to understand that we have to get out of the way. Now that doesn't mean that we go home and go to bed and go to sleep and resolve to do nothing with the rest of our lives, but we need to get out of the way and we need to feed ourselves with the word of God, the grace of God, which brings faith into our lives, and we are filled with the spirit of God, and then we allow the spirit of God to live the life of Christ through us rather than to be engaged in doing, 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 doing without the energy, the spiritual energy to do that, and then we wear ourselves out. Now, if you disregard what you've heard, you may be close to a spiritual nervous breakdown right now. If you're not, probably in the next couple years, you're going to wonder why you ever signed up to work with children, why you ever signed up for a discipleship class, why you ever got in the Bible Institute, and what's going to happen is your flesh is going to begin to rebel against the decisions that you've made because you don't have a spiritual perspective on your life. Now, I don't want to say a whole lot more. Just I do want to do this, though. I want to go to the book of Galatians and kind of pick up where Mark left off last night. So if you go to Galatians chapter number 3, Galatians 2.20 is the verse that I just quoted to you. That should be just three or four verses before what... Mark left off with last night in Galatians chapter 3, 3. But verse 21 of chapter 2 says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, for our practical purposes, by keeping a list of rules and regulations, by checking the boxes, if that's how righteousness comes, then Christ is dead in vain. That's what it said. He picks up now. In chapter number three, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth 
before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect in the flesh? What follows in chapter 3 is an exposition in examples are given of the principles that you've heard in the last three messages. I'm not going to take the time this morning to read through that, but I would encourage you to read chapter 3 and read it right down to the end of that chapter. And by the way, you don't have to stop there. You could go and read the rest of your Bible if you'd like to do that. But I would encourage you to go through chapter 3 sometime today when you get a little bit of a breather. Read that with what you have heard in the first three messages, the Thursday night, uh, uh, Wednesday night, Thursday night, and yesterday morning, and take your time going through there. Don't try to speed read through the book of Galatians. And it will only, I believe, reinforce what you have already heard. Now, if you don't get it, if you, if you read through chapter 3 and you say, I don't see how this is relevant to anything that I've heard, the fact of the matter is that you haven't heard anything, okay? So don't blame the Bible that it's not relevant or that Pastor Grace doesn't know what he's talking about, although that occasionally is true. But right now, that isn't true. Read through this, and if it makes sense to you, then this principle, if it hasn't been rooted in you, is really beginning to sink down deep. But I want to remind you, you're going to have to die daily, every day. You're not going to get your flesh is so strong, maybe your work ethic is so strong, your legalistic works mentality is so strong that every day you're going to have to deal with this and you're going to have to get in God's word, allow the word of God, the grace of God, the spirit of God to come in and you're going to have to make a conscious decision to surrender, to submit to the will of God and allow Christ to live his life through you. So anyway, I'm not going to say any more about that, although everything that I will say today is really built on that principle. Uh, if I got up today and we preached a fourth message on this, it would almost be an insult, I would think, to your intelligence. You heard it all last night. When Mark finished up, he said this, it's really simple, okay? What I just said and what you've heard, now we understand the obstacles to getting it, but now you've heard about two hours of preaching in 25 hours on the subject. So it's really simple. So if I say something in this message this morning that seemingly contradicts what you've heard in the last 25 or the in the first 25 hours uh, the first two evenings and yesterday morning just if I use the word commit will you forgive me right now okay if I use that term or if it's on one of my slides please please forgive me I have I've repented I went to the altar this morning I got on my knees and I said you know God forgive me for using the word commit. Although I want you to know this, when I got married, I did not surrender to my wife. 
I'm just telling, that's a fact. I made a commitment, all right? I made a commitment. We'll leave it at that. We won't get into the Bible on marriage right now. But I did not surrender, I promise you that. Submission is something different than that. And commitment may be a little different. All right, I'm going to start this morning with a video. Now, let me preface the video with this uh, explanation. And I hope I didn't mess that up. I just pressed the wrong button here, I think. But you guys straighten me out in the back if I, got the, if I hit the wrong button. But nonetheless, what you're going to see here is just a two-minute video. The fella who is the, the main player in this video is a friend of mine. He's a deacon in the church that I pastored, senior pastor, for 33 years. His name is Gary Bykirk. Gary is a Medal of Honor recipient. There's only 72 of them alive in the United States of America. The majority of people that receive the Medal of Honor are people who receive it posthumously. That means it's after the funeral. You understand that? They don't get it while they're alive. Now, Gary was wounded three different times in Vietnam. He was a Green Beret. He was a medic in the Green Berets. He's truly, really a man. Back when Gary went into the military, when he became a Green Beret, you remember a song about the Green Berets? and I forget who sang it. But in that song, they make a statement that only three out of 100 applicants become a Green Beret. Think about that. Only 3% of the people. So you're going to see a man who is a really a tough guy, who, is a, who it was filled with himself, who was self-confident, who knew that he could do it. And he'll even say something like that. But this is what happened to Gary. Gary got wounded, and he came to the end of himself. Now, this is a physical, visual illustration of what we're talking about. You must come to the end of self. You have got to stop relying upon you to get her done, and you must begin to rely upon God and allow the life of Christ to be lived through you. When Gary was a Green Beret, he was not a Christian. He's a fine Christian man now. The fellow who is going to speak for him is our Monroe County Sheriff back in Rochester, and he is a fine Christian man in and of himself. So, fellas, if we can roll that video, pay close attention to what Gary, Gary says. Gary is one of only 79 living recipients of the Congressional Medal of Honor. The Green Beret medic saved many lives while under intense fire in Vietnam on April 1st, 1970. Gary Bykirk will tell you he actually died the day he earned the Medal of Honor, and only he can explain why. I fought the greatest battle, not on April 1st, I fought the greatest battle of my life in the hospital bed when I was in hand-to-hand -hand with death. His story is, is simply heroic, uh, sacrificing his life and, and having many people die around him. Uh, the fact that he kept on going back into the battle time after time to save other people, some he didn't even know personally. Everything the Special Forces had taught me, everything that I was, everything that had brought me success up until that point of my life, that's what I took to battle death with, and I lost. Everything that I was, all that had become me, my self-esteem, my self-concept, this picture of who I was, all that died in the hospital bed. What was happening in me was a faith was being born. And then I began that 
that search for that faith. And the way he's lived his life, his humble service to other people, his uh, recognizing that this award is not for him, but more of a calling from his Lord, and, and the fact that he's going to take that and use that uh, as a tool to spread the gospel. Two weeks after I just gave everything to God, God gave me the Medal of Honor. That's why I say I wear it for his honor. And ever since then, uh, he's opened so many doors um, to be able to go in and tell my story, which I say is not really my story, it's, it's his story. The Medal of Honor has allowed me to go to schools, and, uh, churches, military bases, but in everywhere I go, I, you know, I share what the Medal of Honor means. The uh, honor that comes from the Medal of Honor comes from the fact that it symbolizes men and women who have loved this country since this world, this, this country was founded. We who wear it, wear it for all those who serve. It's not about us. It's not about what we have done. Uh, we wear it for all those who are serving. It's about what they have done. And for me personally, it's also not about me, but it's about God and what he has done in my life. hope that you see the illustration in that. By the way, the announcer said there were 79, and I said there were 72. He's wrong. There's only 72 now. When that ad was made, or that film was made, there were 79. Of course, many of them were Vietnam vets, and those people, some of them World War II vets, those people are dying off every day. So Gary is one of 72. Did you hear what he said? He came to the end of himself. He was prepared to go into battle, but when he lay in that hospital bed, he realized he had nothing left to fight with. He was done. He is going to die, and he can do nothing about it. And that's when his faith was born in him. Remember the last verse on your sheet last night? The way, Colossians 2, uh, verse 6 it says, remember, the way that you came to Christ as your Savior is the way that you have to, con these are my words, the way you have to continue every day now by faith. That's what led Gary Beikirk to, the, to Christ, was that terrible situation that he went through, being wounded, being in the hospital, and going. he ended up, literally, if you knew his story, and by the way, it is in the Medal of Honor book, you'll get Gary's story in there, if you could get a copy, or you could look him up on the internet, you'll get his story. Afterwards, after he got out of the military, after he got out of the hospital, he ended up living in a cave. Now, I've never done that, but he really did. He was so... He was so confused about himself and about life, and he just wanted to totally get away from society. But it was that incident, when he was taken to the end of himself, that his faith was born. Now, he didn't get saved that day, but faith. He began to believe in God, and he began to look to God for answers to his life that he did not have in and of himself. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the crucified life. Ultimately, your life is not your own. It's not up to you. You have to look outside of you to God by faith, allow him to fill you, and like Gary today, Gary wears the Medal of Honor to tell that story. 
Any time I've ever heard him speak, and I have probably a half a dozen times over the years, he's always talking about his relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where it was born. That's where the seeds were planted in that hospital bed when he came to the end of himself. Do you understand what the crucified life is all about now? Now, I'm going I'm to be done with that uh, as a general topic, and we're going to move into our uh, PowerPoint, guys. I'm going to hit that now. I'm going to try to deal with something in these next uh, few moments. I've had several people that have asked me questions about this. Now, if you're wondering if I'm going to put my Bible away, I've got the verses written on my outline here, so I will be using the Bible. You hear me quote that, but there's not a whole lot of room up here on this for my big Bible and my notes. Many people have asked me, well, they saw the little wheel that I showed yesterday morning, and they figured that out right away, that that was kind of a wheel of life or a, a wheel for success in life. And there's different life coaches that use wheels like that to try to influence those who would come uh, to them to be more successful in business or family or in life or whatever it is. So that's my wheel of life. And you'll see it again. But the question is this, how do I balance all that stuff? I had a discussion this morning with someone about that. How do we balance all of this? You've had to balance some things to get here, at least uh, time, you had to balance that. You had to deal with your family, probably. You had to deal with maybe your work, your employer to get here. You had to deal with your budget to get here. You had to deal with God to get here, there's at least five areas of those 10 areas in that cycle that you had to deal with, you had to ask questions about and come to decisions to get here. We do that every day. In fact, none of those individual pieces of that pie are uh, isolated from all of the others. They all intersect with one another in some way, don't they? So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you some thoughts, basically five thoughts on balancing or determining life's priorities. Always in mind, keep in mind, I'm crucified with Christ. Well, see, I said it again. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So when I talk about what I have to do or what I have to commit myself to do, it's always because I'm surrendered, or I submit, or whatever the term is. But I understand Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And please, we're not talking about a being necessarily a disciplined Green Beret person. We're talking about balancing our priorities according to the Word of God. So we're going to start with this, with prayer. Father, we come to you and we ask for your help, your wisdom, and your guidance I know that when I talk about this subject, that one size does not fit all. There are people in here who have had little children, babies, within the last month. And then there are people like me who are in their 70s and haven't had a baby for 36 years in their household other than some grandchildren. We're not in the same place. My, uh, I find myself freer today. I don't have five children to pay for food every week and clothing and education and college bills and worry about where they are and worry about 
when they're driving my car down the street, and my insurance bills and all of those. Those things are history for me. But there are people right now in here that live there. So one size doesn't fit all. So everything that I'm going to say here doesn't necessarily apply to every person in here. But Lord, help us with these general principles and truths that we can iron things out and balance things in our lives for your honor and for your glory and with the help, with the word, with the spirit, by the grace of God, in Jesus' name we pray these things, amen. So let me give you three verses of scripture that I'm gonna kind of lay on this, just so you know that we're talking about the Bible. Matthew chapter 6, 33, I said it yesterday. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's going to be our first point here this morning. What is really important in life? Seeking first things. So if you want to put a verse down in your notes, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Here's another verse. Mark came up with this verse, I believe, on Wednesday night. Colossians chapter 3 says, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. That's Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. So these are kind of general parameters we're to seek. First, we're to do everything we do in the name of the Lord with thanksgiving. And then Colossians 3.23 says, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Now, what I have done is I have separated life into, let's see, am I pressing the button here? Oh, yeah, that's good. Uh, those are the three verses. And uh, I have separated life into 10 different categories. I'm going to guess that just about anything that you're involved in, that you do, that you could put under one of these 10 categories. Now, they're not all uh, equal in importance, and I think that's pretty obvious. Um, <clears throat> I think vacational is on there. Now, that's a, maybe this is a vacation for you, and so you see this is very important, but I'm talking about maybe going down to the Gulf of Mexico somewhere and just enjoying your, say, maybe going to St. Lucia or St. Croix or St. Well, I wouldn't go to St. Thomas now. They're still trying to clean that up from last winter. But nonetheless, there's some beautiful places to go on vacation. I think that's part of life. I think you ought to take a vacation. That doesn't mean you need to get on a plane and spend $5,000 to go there. Maybe you just need to turn the TV off, the phone off, and shut the blinds and whatnot and have a staycation right in your own home and maybe go out to dinner a couple times during the week. Just do something different, but kind of disconnect from the world. But you can see all of these things. Think of what you do and see if you can't put this in one of the pieces of this pie. Would it fit? I'm going to guess that you'll find that you'll be able to do that. Now, we're talking about Galatians 2.20, and we said this also, that the true Christian has experienced a genuine conversion, the new birth. Remember the chart we put up yesterday morning? And is in the process of becoming Christ-like. That's transformation. God's purpose, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is so that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. 
I am to be a channel of the love of God and the fruit of the Spirit is to be distributed wherever I go in this life. So as the Spirit comes within me, the grace of God comes to me, the Word of God, through the Word of God, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God as it comes to me, I am to evidence, and I will if I do that, the fruit of the Spirit. It becomes automatic. So we've already said these things, but I want to repeat them because of their importance. Basically, what we read in the Bible is, a, in a sense, a biography of Christ. It's a portrait of Jesus Christ. And in the Bible, we learn of God, we learn of his son, Jesus Christ, and by God's grace, we are changed into the image of God in Christ through the inner workings of the Spirit and the Word of God. That's why you need to be in the Bible Institute. That's why you need to do D2. That's why you need to read the Bible every day of your life. Something in God's word. Because that's how our faith is strengthened. Reading God's word with an attitude to receive what God is giving us and an attitude, a resolve, that we are going to put into our lives, we are going to act upon what we learn in God's word. Now, these are the basic thoughts for my I Live series that I did. And there's really 13 sermons in this, this series. But we want to now attempt to determine what really is important in life, how we go about doing that, and how we balance out our life's priorities. So, let me see. Uh, I may be getting ahead of myself here. Let's just see. Okay, let me go back here and explain what this is. This is uh, the result of a survey that I took in our church six years ago. I had 800 adults actually fill out the survey. Not everybody did for whatever reason, but what I did is I put the 10 things that are on that pie, I put them out in front of the people, and I gave them a, a little chart that they could fill out, and I said, I want you to rank uh, each one of these in importance of priority in your own life. I want you to do that. Will you do that? So we took a portion of a church service on a Sunday in our Sunday services, and I asked people to fill these out. Now, those numbers mean this. The numbers on the right tell us what the average rating was for that particular category. In other words, of all 800 people, the average for family was two. In other words, the average of 800 people thought that family was the second most important. The average for spiritual was 2.1. Now, you know, I'm the pastor of the church, so I take blame for that. I, I would think that number two should be number one, and number one should be number two. But I'm dealing with imperfect people. Even though I'm perfect myself, I'm dealing with an imperfect church congregation, kind of like what I'm dealing with right now, right here. So, but anyway, I just want you to see how, how this body of adults, this wasn't teenagers, this wasn't children, these were all people who were 18 years of age or older than that, this is how they rated these things. Now, again, one size doesn't fit all, we all might not uh, do, uh, do uh, the your own list the same way, but you see family, my family, my spiritual life, my church, 
Finances was high. It would average 5.5, about in the middle. Uh, what is that? Vocational, talking about our work and all of that. Intellectual, you can see I've got a pretty stupid congregation there. They rated that number six. Physical fitness, a lot of fat people in the church, no doubt about that. Number 6.3, our community, and then uh, recreation. We, our, that's why they're not physically fit, actually, because they're not into that. And then, what is that? Vacationally. Well, I'm kind of proud of them that that wasn't the most important thing on the list, that taking a vacation uh, was. But anyway, I, I just want you to see that as I did this, I kept practically dealing with the people, trying to help them adjust what is really important in their life and what isn't. And I wanted them to see what other people thought. Now, they could look at what they put down, their own list, and they could see kind of where they rated. Now, um, as I said, one size doesn't fit all. Some people may have put, you know, financial number two, and they may have put church number eight or whatnot, and I'm sure that there are people that did things like that. But anyway, that's what this is all about. So I'm going to give you five thoughts, I said, right? This is number one. You must decide what is important in your life. I know you say, duh, tell me something I don't know. Well, I know you know that, but a lot of people don't do that. They wake up in the morning and they kind of make up every day of their life. They just kind of bounce from one assignment or responsibility to the next, and they really don't have a plan for it. Stephen Covey, who's no longer with us, has written some good books. He's a Mormon, but he's written some good books, and he says um, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's the most difficult thing for all of us to do. What is the main thing in your life that pushes all other relative non-essentials out of its way? What is the main thing in your life? Now, I'm asking you to think a little bit here this morning. I gave you a list of 10 things. What was the most important thing on that list for you? And frankly, do you really live as though that is the most important thing? Or you just say that? Do you just say that because you know it's the right thing to say? Every individual, every group, every organization, every business must have a short list of absolute do's and don'ts. What do we do? What don't we do? Maybe you didn't think of the second half of that. But you've got to have some don'ts on your list also because those don'ts end up consuming a lot of the do time that, that makes you uh, ineffective in those areas. These are guiding principles that are musts and they cannot be ignored or violated. What are those priorities or those first things in your life? Now, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? Let me give you a list that I These are my opinions, and I could probably come up with a passage of Scripture to give you why. I didn't in this list, but this is what seeking first, Matthew 6, 33, is all about. Seeing life from God's perspective and being ambitious for his purposes, making God's will and desires your number one priority in life. 
hungering for God and his character to the degree that we commune with him first each day, wholly following and honoring him in all things, removing the clutter from life, trusting God for the results, and seeking his rule, will, and authority by submitting, I didn't use the word commit there. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Anyway, <laughs> his, by submitting to and being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you could probably add some things to that list. That's a pretty good list right now. If I could uh, do that every day, I think I would be well on my way to putting first things first in my life. In fact, in my own life, and uh, the pulpit in our church, we have kind of, it's a wooden tabletop, but it's plexiglass around the bottom. And inscribed on that plexiglass is Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. And the reason is, when we built our building, they bought me a new pulpit. I didn't ask for it. So if you're offended by plexiglass pulpits, I'm sorry. I didn't choose that plexiglass pulpit. Maybe you like music stands better. But nonetheless, on that plexiglass, it says, seek first, Matthew 6, 33, because that is the verse that I responded to by faith when I surrendered when I submitted myself to God to go into the ministry. Now, what this is what I did. I didn't say I want to be a pastor. I didn't say I want to be a youth pastor. I didn't say that. This is what I said. This was my decision. The second most important decision, maybe the third, because marrying my wife, i got to put that second. My first most important was, was, was trusting Christ as Savior. My second most important decision I'm not going to put this, you know, it really isn't, but it was marrying my wife. But my really, wait, no, my second most was, Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do with my life. I wasn't a pastor. I was working at Kodak, Eastman Kodak Company. I was working in the research laboratories. It was about five, three to five months after I got saved, I came to the realization that there was a call on my life, that God wanted me to be involved in Christianity, to be proactive. And I just said, Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do. And I really meant that. Have you ever done that? Think about that. Any missionary that went to the field, maybe I'm being presumptuous, I saw Paul Clark here last night, who's a dear friend. Any missionary like Paul, it's sometime in his life, not only came to a decision by faith to trust, trust Christ, but he came to his decision and said, Lord, whatever you want me to do, that may be your biggest obstacle right now to going forward in your Christian life. If God says, well, I want you to be in D2. And you go, no, no, I made up, no, I got enough of that. I got enough of that discipleship stuff. Is that what God wants you to do? That's where we surrender. That's where we submit. Do you understand that? God, use me. We're talking about the crucified life, and that is the crucified life. I will do whatever you show me to do and whatever you want me to do. 
Now, once we're filled with the Spirit of God, the Word of God, it produces love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance, all, all of those things. Then Christ begins to flow out of us. That is the goal. But we must put first things first. Here's my second thought, margin. You know what margin is? In business, margin is your real profit in your business. For example, uh, let's say I'm in, uh, I, I sell candy bars. So I buy a candy bar from the wholesaler for 25 cents. And now I'm going to sell it for more than 25 cents because I want to make a profit. But there are other expenses in, involved in this. Maybe I have to provide air conditioning in my business. I can't believe the money they spend here. I froze to death in here last night. It's 100 degrees outside, and it's 47 inside. I don't know how they do that. I'm not kidding. I, I got long pants on today. I'm from New York. I'm used to cold weather. This is the coldest weather I've been in in about six months. Freezing to death here. What's the matter with you people? I don't know what the thermostat is set at, but woo, it's cold here. Anyway, I got goosebumps on my legs all the time, 24 hours a day. Anyway, margin, margin is this. Margin is essentially your real profit. I buy a candy bar for 25 cents from the wholesaler. I sell it for 50, and I have expenses in between. I have 10 or 15 cents of expenses, and I end up with 10 cents profit. I've got a 20% profit margin. Do you understand that? That's extra. That's for me. That's my profit. That's what I live off. So when we're talking about margin, we're talking about simply this. You need to have more time than you need. If you buy a house and your mortgage payment is $1,500 a month for your mortgage payment, and you make $1,500 a month after taxes and Social Security and all that, you have no margin. What happens if you have an emergency? You have to go into debt. You have no margin. You must live below your means. So when we're talking about we're talking about balancing your life. You gotta have some space for yourself, people. And some of you are driven to the edge. And you know, you've got to, this is part of the crucified life. You've gotta do this. You gotta be in church on Tuesday night. You gotta be doing this on Wednesday night. You got Little League on Thursday night. You got dance lessons on Friday night. You gotta do, they gotta go to a party or a picnic or whatever on Saturday. You gotta be in church. You gotta be in church for six hours because you're involved in ministry. And by the time nine o'clock Sunday night comes, you're looking for a weekend and it's over. You're in deep trouble. You start in a hole Monday morning at 5.30 and you woke up, wake up with bags under your eyes and a bad stinking attitude. You know what I'm talking about? You, gotta, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you woke up that way this morning. We, we know that. You gotta have some margin in your life. You gotta have some space somewhere. Now. Here's a book that I read many years ago, and I did this series six years ago, but this is a, if you're struggling with this, this is a medical doctor who talks about margin in your life, 
this is a good book to get if you want to follow up on what, what I'm saying, because I certainly can't say everything that needs to be said about the subject. But margin is the space between our everyday lives and our limits. This principle is a warning against overload. God doesn't want you to be overloaded. He doesn't want you to have to come to the end of yourself physically in the sense that you can't stand up anymore, that your head is spinning and you can't think and you have no time to read the Bible and you're broke because you spent more than you make. God doesn't want you there. You've put yourself there most probably. So margin is importantly important. Peter Schizero, in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, he refers to the concept we're talking about as the gift of limits. You need to know what your limit is, and you need to back off. If the engine in your car will go 6,000 RPMs, you know that little red line in there, your tachometer? It's, it, it, it's 6,000 RPMs, it's got a red line. In other words, if you go past that red line, you are risking blowing the engine to smithereens because it wasn't designed and it wasn't engineered to go any faster than that. Well, if you drive your car, it's 5,900 RPMs every day around the racetrack, you're probably still risking, after a half hour of driving like that, even though you're below the red line, you don't have much margin. You may blow your engine anyway. Some of us are living our lives, let me use a uh, temperature analogy, you're living your life at 211 degrees and boiling is 212. And you wonder why you fly off the handle when something goes wrong in your life because you're ready to explode all the time. You're at 211. You're just kind of percolating and buzzing, you know, and somebody, somebody pulls out in front of you and you go, you throw them up, whatever it is, whatever nasty thing you want to do, and you open the window and you scream at them, you know, and you go, oh, why did I do that? What's the matter with me? You're living at 211. You're living at 5,900 RPMs and your engine only goes 6,000 and you're blowing a gasket is what's happening to you. You've got to have some margin. You've got to live or run below your means. Did you ever hear of a nervous breakdown? They don't use that terminology anymore in our world. They use terms like this. Acute stress disorder. That sounds better to me. I'd rather have that than a nervous breakdown. Or post-traumatic stress disorder. Or mixed anxiety stress disorder. Or we talk about panic attacks, you know? And I'm not making fun of you if you have panic attacks, but it may be your fault that you have panic attacks. I don't know. You go see your doctor about that, all right? The nervous breakdown is really, and this is a, this is a medical definition, is a specific acute time-limited reactive disorder involving symptoms such as anxiety, depression, usually precipitated by external stressors. Does that make you feel better now that that the medical people have uh, told us this? According to a recent study, almost 25% 
of people who are stressed out, (laughs) you probably already guessed this, is because of their marriage. 25% of people who are about to have a nervous breakdown, if we can use that term, is because of that. But here's other major things. Marriage and intimate relationships, work and school, finances and health issues. Those are the biggest things that stress us out. What we find ourselves, and I had this conversation with one of the pastors this morning, is we find ourselves in a quest for bigger and better, more. Pastors, you can't keep having bigger and better every year in your church. You say, why not? Practical experience on my part. I'm just telling you, at some point, it just can't get any bigger or any better. You know the unit, well, I'm not sure that the universe has limits on it, but certainly the state you live in or the buildings that you occupy, they have limits. At some point, you know, we've got camp, and this camp is only successful. Last year, we had 837, now I'm making up the number, But this year, we have 855. So Chris gets up and he says, it's the best camp ever. But if next year we have 854, he can't say that. He'll have to lie or he'll have to measure something else. This is the coldest camp we have ever had. It's 46 degrees here in the auditorium. Last year, it was 47. It's not that important, that particular number, I know that. But we run out of topping things. Now, I'm saying this for the benefit of leaders. Now, there's always people who will exploit what I'm saying. Oh, didn't you hear what Pastor Gray says? We really don't need to set big goals and all that. We need to just become more Laodicean and kind of fit in with... Now, I'm just simply saying... Bigger and better isn't necessarily the most important thing that we ought to be involved in. Who are you training? What is happening? What's happening to the people in your ministry? And you need to get look at maybe some other measurements to determine what real and true success is. Just getting a lot of people to show up. I mean, I can go outside and sit on the steps and I can start counting people driving down the street. There's a lot of kids here. I don't know if they're Mormon kids. I'll count them and say, you know, they were over at UCM. Yeah, they were at camp. Oh man, I saw 300, 400 teenagers there at UCM. I did, I did. They just didn't come into the conference, but I can lie about it. Or I could stand in the parking lot as a pastor and try to determine the attendance by taking the number of cars that come into the parking lot and multiplying by six, right? I mean, at least six people come in every car to church. So so let's see, I had 106 cars, so that's 636 people. But there's really only 205, you know, or whatever it is. Why are we driven this way? This is America. And we're driven to be bigger and better. If it isn't bigger, then it's not better. We need to be careful. We've got to have margin, and maybe we need to to find other ways to measure things. I came up with some quotations, and and I don't see them right now in here. I'll probably run into them as I move along here. But uh, some of the quotations that I found, let me find them. I've got to give you some of these. Some of these are really cool things. Ah... 
one of the, this is Bruce Lee. Remember Bruce Lee? Remember Bruce Lee? The uh, Jeet Kune Do specialist. Not Taekwondo. Jeet Kune Do was his, his uh, discipline. He says this, it's not daily increase, but daily decrease that makes you successful. Hack away at the inessentials. That's what Bruce Lee said. Rather than getting more, 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 maybe in our churches, we need to get rid of some things that really are not priorities. And we spend a lot of time doing things just because we've always done them. And you know what happens to church people, Pastor? Church people go, well, I can't believe we're not going to do that anymore. What, 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 Pastor, where are you taking the church? The answer that I give to people when they ask me that is I tell them, straight to hell. We're taking this church to hell. I'm going to blow this thing apart right now. And I'm starting by getting rid of that ministry right there. You can't do everything in life. I love to snow ski. I haven't snow skied in over 10 years. I love to do it. I haven't done it. it. Just, it's not a top priority for me. It hasn't worked out for me. I have probably played just about every sport that you can play in my life. Right now, and I probably don't need to tell you this, I'm not playing anything. Isn't it obvious? Take a good look. I'm not doing anything. I'm just a big old guy hanging around. But I will say this, Mark Trotter likes me. He tells me, he tells me all the time, he says, I love old people. I love old people. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. I don't hear that from a lot of people. I love old people. I think he's making fun of me when he says that, but he loves old people. I'll take it. I'll take him at his word. Okay, all right. Margin. There's a lot to be said about that. But let's, young people have a tendency to feel like they've got to do everything. Here's one thing you got to do. You got that phone out, you got 6,522 friends on Facebook. So what you have to do is you have to sit there and peel through every one of them, see what they're eating for lunch, you know. <laughs> see what... And you blow nine hours a day on Facebook looking at what your 6,500 friends are doing. Is it really that important? Really, is it? Everywhere I go, I see young people on their phone. I know, you're saying, I love old people. Yeah, I know, I'm an old people. If you saw my phone, you'd laugh at me. I've got a flip phone. You know what I use my phone for? A telephone, that's what I use it for. I know that's stupid, but I use it for a telephone. Anyway, young people have the compulsion to experience everything. We want to try everything. And that's natural for most of us. We want to try different things. But you have to decide what you can and what you can't do. You can't do everything. Here's the third thing. You have to come up with a budget. Do you have a budget financially? I wonder. I wonder. Now, you have one in your head because you know a kind of basically what your commitments, whoops, I use that word, what your surrenders are, the surrenders that you've made every month to the mortgage company and the car payment and the insurance uh, surrenders and things like that that you've made. So, uh, but budget. How about budgeting your time? Those 11 things or 10 things on that wheel. Do you have a budget for your time? 
How much time do you spend uh, in church? How much time do you spend reading God's word? How much time do you spend with your children and you surrender to that amount? You commit yourself to being with your kids every day for an hour, having a conversation with each one of them, a meaningful conversation. We have to do that because life happens to us and things that are important like that, they just kind of fly by. Budgeting, budgeting every area of your life. I keep a calendar. That is, I plan where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do every day. But I don't plan 24 hours out. I don't even plan 16 hours out a day. I'm not sure that I plan 12, but occasionally that I'll be busy 12 hours a day. I'm giving myself, last slide, a little bit of margin. Inventory your life and be honest with yourself about how you spend your time resources. What are time wasters? Do I need to tell you? Social media, video games, television, and I would say sleep, but I, that, is, <laughs> that comes in handy every now and then, particularly at camp. What are money wasters? Credit cards when you're paying 13% interest, uh, prepared food expenses. You never, although it's almost as expensive to eat at home now as it is out in some places, but still, are you wasting money on things that you don't need? Trinkets and technology and $1,000 telephones? There's several of them in here right now. Is that the best way? Do you need a $1,000 telephone? Maybe if you're a businessman, somebody like that, and you have to stay connected all the time, maybe you do. I don't know. My telephone, and it's back there where the sound is, I bought my telephone for 49 bucks. 49 bucks. It's a flip phone, but it's brand new. And guess what? I own it. It's mine. I'm not paying for two years for a $1,000 telephone. And I don't have a $100 a month plan. You know what my plan is? 10 cents a phone call. Isn't that cool? <laughs> you say, hey, I never heard of anything like that. That's how I grew up. You paid 10 cents for a phone call. You know what I spend a month on phone calls? About 18 bucks. How much do you spend? Oh, I love old people. <laughs> well, keep your $100 a month phone plan. God bless you. Yeah. Guess what? Guess what I have in my garage? I have a Corvette convertible. I don't have a $1,000 telephone. I didn't say a new Corvette convertible. It's 13 years old, but I have a Corvette convertible because I don't have some other things. I don't smoke. If I started smoking when I was 21, and I figured this out, 21 years of age, and I smoke one pack of cigarettes for 50 years a day, at the cost when it was like a quarter for a pack, you know how much money that is? It's $50,000 for cigarettes in my lifetime. My Corvette didn't cost 50,000. You smoke, you got a Corvette? <laughs> we make choices what do you want 
How do you waste your money? I'll tell you how I waste mine. I buy Corvettes. That's how I waste my money. But you know what? The Corvette I bought is still worth about 70% of what I paid for it when I bought it. How about your cigarettes? What are they worth? What are your butts worth? And I don't mean this butt. Anyway, never mind. All right. I think we're going to... How am I doing? Time-wise? How am I doing? Okay. I'm, I'm moving along. I really am. I only have 21 points. Okay? So this is three or four. Anyway. You know... Uh, Sam's got eight more points. <laughs> Remember how long we were here to get one point done? <laughs> you weren't planning on lunch, were you? <laughs> we might be done by dinner time, all right? But be sure, Chris, to get your kids, all right? All right. Anyway, here's a chart again. Here's a chart. Learn to evaluate your resources and learn to say no. Sometimes we say, no, I can't do that. I can't go there. I can't buy a $5 Starbucks drink. I'm going to get to that here in just a moment. Oh, I love old people. I really do. <laughs> Budgeting is so important. Here's another statistic, and this bears out. It's in my notes. I don't think I have, I may have a slide on this. Let me see, I think I do. This is, the, this is compound effect. Let me go back and make sure I've said enough on this one and not too much. Budget. Write a budget up, financially, time-wise. Keep a calendar. Evaluate where you spend your time. Do you ever read? Do you take a walk? Do you get some exercise? What do you do? Do you do, a, do you, are you involved in your community at all? Or do you look at some of these things and you go, I know I'm not doing very well. I don't know I'm not doing anything about that. I'm just gonna ignore that part of my life. Well, there's a compound effect that happens when you ignore certain parts of your life, like your health. There's a compound effect it takes place in your life when you ignore your physical well-being over time. Compound effect. Well, you know what compound effect is, don't you? You understand. Let me come out here on the speaker. Is this going to hold me, guys? I think so. I need to see my own. Whoa! The that's this. The beauty of compound effect is in its simplicity. Notice what happens initially when you invest money at say 5% interest, you look at it a year later and you go, boy, it really didn't make that much money in the year, but it continues to compound over time and it grows. By the time you get my age, money that you invested, like Social Security, let me tell you, and I hope there's still some money for you when it's your turn to collect. <laughs> However, I got all the money I paid in Social Security back in five months. Every penny I put in, I got back in five months. Now, that's not a promise to you, but my point is money that I put in Social Security when I was 16 years old, nickels and dimes, now are dollars in five months. I started drawing Social Security when I was 66 years old, and I'm almost 72. For six years, I've been drawing Social Security, 
but I got all my money back in five months. The next five and a half years is all compound interest. And listen, those of you who are still in Social Security, I want you to know this, and I want you to feel good about it. You're paying for my living right now. Thank you so much. Keep paying into Social Security. I enjoy those checks every single month. Oh, dear brother, I love old people. <laughs> I see some of you getting mad at me. You think I'm sarcastic. Anyway, here's another one. I won't jump in front of the speaker here. The compound effect is always working. You can, by the way, it's negative too. When you're borrowing money, you're losing money. You're losing interest. You know that. I know I'm telling maybe one or two people something they don't know, but you, you can choose to make it work for you or you can ignore it and experience the negative effects of this powerful principle. And by the way, this works not just in the monetary area of your life, but it works in all of your areas of life. Let me tell you this. You invest a little bit in a college education when you're 17, 18, 19 years of age, and you continue a lifelong of learning from the time you're 17. By the time you're 39 or 40, very likely you're going to be at the top of your class. That is in work. They're going to recognize that you know something, you can think, you're reasonable, and you're going to end up getting a promotion. Rather than the guys who like to go out on Friday night, get blasted, go have a bunch of beers, sleep in on Saturday, watch ball games all the time, 20 years later, they're still doing what they did and getting paid essentially what they got paid in the early part of their work career. There's a compound effect that takes place in your life, not just monetarily. Now, here's an example of this. Here's your cafe or your caramel macchiato, okay? <laughs> this is your Starbucks, your $4 or $5 cup a day. This is true. I figured it out. The real cost of a $4 a day coffee habit over 20 years will only cost you $51,833. I said 20 years. You're only 20 years old. How about 60 years? How about when you're 60 years old, will that cost you? Oh, by the way, my Corvette did not cost $51,000. So you can drink your caramel macchiato every day, and I'll drive my Corvette. And you'll see in 20 years what my Corvette will be worth. It might be worth more money than I paid for it in 20 years. You know where your caramel macchiato is? It's in the septic system is where it is. That's where it is. Not to mention the 35 pounds you put on because you've been drinking them for 20 years. All right. Thank you, Pastor Grace. I'm so glad you came to camp this year. I'm really being edified. I'm really being encouraged. Well, there's a lot of other things that I could say about that. However, this is the last thing I'm going to say and get out of the way. Well, actually, let me just show you this. This is kind of, this is kind of what, I, for me, this is my chart I kind of build a pyramid and I said, because all, all things are not equal, the most important thing to me is my spiritual surrender. I would say commitment, but I can't. Uh, my spiritual commitment or my spiritual surrender, submission in my life. That's number one. Number two is my family. 
Number three is my church. Number four is my community. Now, I want you to see those first. The first one is the basis, is my spirituality. Everything has a spiritual basis. Every one of these other nine things is based on spirituality. You're a spiritual person. But notice, family, church, and community. You know what they involve? What do they all have in common? People. People. People are our most important priority. The people in our lives. I have a little wristband. This is my mission statement. It says this. Love God, love people, serve others, tell everyone. Corvette isn't on there. It's not a priority. If I blow up my Corvette when I go home, that's fine. I'll just buy another one. You know, because of all you people that pay into the Social Security. I want to thank you in advance. I really do. But nonetheless, now, notice intellectual, financial. What are we talking about? Now we're talking about me, my intellect. My money, my work, my body, what I do for fun, recreation, and what I, what I do on vacation. So the most important things in your life and in my life are people. First of all, spiritual, love God. That's the basis. Then I love people, my family, my church, my community. In that order, I might add. Then what's important to me is to develop my mind to keep reading and keep engaged, even though I'm an old person, I still want to be able to think. I need to take care of myself and my wife, and I want to leave something for my kids, maybe my Corvette. My oldest son would love to have that. And, uh, but all of these things, this is kind of the order of importance in my life. So where am I going? The last thing I want to say is this. Develop a mission statement for each one of these things. So what do you mean? This is a mission statement. This is my life in eight words. I can tell you what's important to me. Love God. It's the most important thing to me. Love people. You see where they are on that last list. It's my family. It's my church. It's my community. Serve others. Why? Because the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And I'm following him. And fourthly, tell everyone. Tell what's on this, but tell everyone the gospel of Jesus Christ. So develop a mission statement. How does each of these ten things fit into your life? What are you trying to accomplish? And what are you willing to move out of your life so you can accomplish something in your life that's more important? Things that matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. It's not a daily increase, Bruce Lee said, but a daily decrease. Hack away at the inessentials. Do the things that are most important, in other words. Stephen Covey says most of us spend too much time on what is urgent and not enough time on what is important. The will of God is not something you add to your life, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot said. It's a course you choose. You either line up yourself with the Son of God or you capitulate to the principle which governs the rest of the world. Are you just going to live like everybody else? This is 
a quotation from someone that most of you have never heard. This is a politician. His name, Ezra Taft Benson. Benson was the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture under President Eisenhower. That goes 1952 to 1960. Some of you don't know who this person is. This is what he said, though. Listen. When we put God first, all other things fall into their proper place or drop out of our lives. Our love of the Lord will govern the claims for our affection, the demands on our time, the interests we pursue, and the order of our priorities. Here's my last quote. This is about reading. I'm a reader. I like to read, and that's my priority. But the great opposition to reading is what I allow to fill my time instead of reading. To say we have no time to read is not really true. We simply have chosen to use our time for other things or have allowed our time to be filled, uh, to, filled to the exclusion of reading. So don't add reading to your to-do list. Just drop doing the things that keep you from doing it, but read. We're talking about your mind. Your mind is so important. This body, you know, you're going to have to live with that. And it will be important to you as life goes on. But more important than your physical body will be your mind and connecting with God, with your mind. God made us spiritual creatures, and he wants to connect with us right up here before it gets in here and before it goes out there. For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Our actions are a direct result of what we put in upstairs in our mind. Priorities. Review very quickly. First things first. Get some margin in your life. Write up a budget. Be, realize the importance of compound effect. A little bit now will be a lot later on. And then write a mission statement for each one of those ten areas on that wheel. Father... We thank you for the opportunity to come together here this morning, and I hope that I've been an encouragement and a help to this group of people. Lord, we only have so much time, and there's nobody in this room that knows exactly how much we have left. We might have 30, 40 years. We might have 30 or 40 minutes. We don't know. But help us to use that time and all of our resources in good stewardship Use it as though we have been bought with a price and we are not our own. And everything that you've afforded us is gifts in our life, are things to be used ultimately to bring honor and to bring glory to our Savior, Jesus Christ, in this world. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen.